Welcome to The Informed Life. In each episode of this show, we'll talk with people from different fields to find out how they organize information to get things done. I'm your host, Jorge Arango. My guest today is Beck Tench. Beck is a third-year PhD student at the University of Washington. This role requires that she deal with a lot of information. And in this show, we talk about how she makes sense of it all. We also discuss the subject of her PhD itself, which is both fascinating and highly relevant. You can find notes for this episode at theinformed.life. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please review it in Apple's podcast directory. This helps other folks find it. Thanks. And now, Beck Tench. Um, thanks for having me on the show, Jorge. So I'm a PhD student at the Information School at the University of Washington. I'm in my third year, so I'm about halfway through. Um, I'm studying, basically, uh, most PhD students have a Venn diagram that kind of charts what they're studying. My Venn diagram is public space, contemplative practice, and technology. So I'm interested in where those three overlap. Mostly, you maybe say it in a sentence, I'm interested in how we can design um, spaces and technologies that facilitate contemplative practices or just contemplative experiences. And by contemplative, I mean essentially being present to life uh, in that moment, spaces that will help us be present, slow down and notice the world. But there's also this sort of flavor of being lovingly present as part of it. It's not just hyper-focus and attention-driven. It is also considering compassion, basically. That is fascinating. I am super intrigued by this Venn diagram because in some ways our current technologies are doing the opposite of leading us to contemplation. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about how, through your work, you are addressing that? Yeah. One way that I'm addressing it is I'm holding open the possibility that what I'm studying will help me be optimistic and useful with technology. And I will use technology in a space to facilitate an experience. But I'm also holding open the idea that we may need to minimize or replace technology in order for us to be present. So I really have no idea. And maybe it's both in different situations and maybe one after the other or something like that. I'm trying my very best not to be a hater <laughs> of the, the, the sort of really unfair ways that some people are using technology. And I'm very concerned in, in some ways about that. And I read a lot about it. I have lots of thoughts that we can dive into about that. But for the shorter answer, I would just say, I don't know which direction I'll go with regards to that technology circle. Will it be plus technology or will it be minus technology? Yeah, I think that this is an issue that a lot of us are dealing with, um, trying to establish a good balance where we get the best from technology, but also don't let it take us over, right? Yeah, I mean, something that is really um, unfair about the way that a lot of the technology that we use is incentivized, let's say, is that it, it, it's not incentivized to do good by us. 
And I could see a world where that's actually not the case, where we look at the experience of using a technology as not solely to make us productive or solely to make us fast, but to rather honor the fact that we're like human beings alive and we have families and friends and all these relationships and that technology is, is, is actually built to, to honor and, and acknowledge and help us experience that. It's not necessarily a positive, wonderful feeling all the time. Life is sometimes really hard. Technology can be really hard to use or really frustrating or all those sorts of things, but to realize that a human is using it and, and that that human has a very precious life and that the time that we're spending using it is imbued with that. If, 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 if we could build with that in mind, I think that we wouldn't necessarily build things that just solely make us fast and productive, which is basically how most of it is these days, or we just get mesmerized, but we're not necessarily engaged and, and we're maximizing our attention there. When you say productive and fast, that resonates with me, this idea that somehow technologies are pitched to us as ways of making us more effective and what I'm hearing you say is that they could also, perhaps I'm reading into it, but that search for effectiveness can drive us away from other people. And perhaps uh, there's a way for these things to uh, also bring us closer together. That's absolutely um, something that I think is possible. And I also just think that I hope we'll actually get to talk uh, about this with information management, that information management, when it's, let's just call it really fast and productive, loses something in terms of our own personal relationship to the information and our own personal relationship to our learning. When everything has to be just like super fast and easy to find and all of those sorts of things, our actual experience of using it can be potentially poor. If, if we value things besides being productive and fast. Yeah, there can be such a thing as over-optimizing, right? Over-optimize our lives until we die. <laughs> it's like, we know there's an end to this. Where are, we, where are we going so quickly? Can you tell me about the public space circle and the Venn diagram? Because I, I, I can totally see the overlap between contemplative practice and technology, but I'm very curious about this. We can think about um, what comes up to, to mind when we think of the word contemplative? Maybe that is quiet and peaceful. Maybe it's sacred. Um, maybe it's uh, actually rhythmic and there's dancing or singing. There's all sorts of ways to contemplate. And I think that so far we relegate spaces for contemplation to be kind of religious spaces or very special places that we don't necessarily go very often. Um, and what I'm interested in is how do we make our everyday space, you know, the grocery store line, the bus, our office, our living room, uh, eligible to be present and not necessarily just sanctify these spaces that look at all the ways that we experience space. Now, there's a lot of research in something called restorative space, which uh, is essentially nature. There are 
people who study restorative space in urban spaces, but most of the people who, who have theories about what makes space restorative point to nature as kind of this magic area for us to just sort of be restored. And there's lots of theories as to why that is. And I'm, I'm interested in how do we make a choice to stop working, stop being productive and take care of ourselves and experience space contemplatively, which means just being aware and being lovingly aware. And what are the features of that that help us come, come back to that and even share it with others? And when we go to those places or when we go to those moments, if those places are just regular everyday places, um, what do we do while we're in them? And so I'm, I'm specifically calling that public space because I want it to be very everyday. I, I don't want it to be super special. And I also think that the public, we need to be given spaces like that. We need to have spaces like that available to us um, and easy access. When you say public space, what I'm hearing is everyday spaces, the spaces of our lives, as opposed to this idea of going somewhere special, be it nature or be it a sacred, quote unquote, space, right? This is more about opening the everyday up for contemplation. That's right. I remember reading at one point about a practitioner of Zen Buddhism who was in a hotel room during um, World War II uh, as the city was being heavily bombarded. And um, this person was using the sound of the explosions um, to meditate somehow. You know, this notion that you don't have to be in a monastery. The world provides you enough fodder for reflection. That's a beautiful, beautiful application of what I just said. So I'm super excited about your research and this area. I mean, I drew the Venn diagram as you were explaining it, and it seems um, super enticing. I didn't know that this was your focus, which is great uh, that it's coming out. It's, it's such a fascinating and relevant uh, field for us to talk about. The reason actually that you're on the show today is because you published a series of videos on YouTube that uh, caught my attention. Do you want to tell us about those, what, what they're about? Sure. So right now, as I said, I'm right in the middle of my PhD program. And right in the middle of the program is this thing called the general exam, which is basically a, a, a massive literature review. Literature review being a term that means you go and learn everything there is to already know. It's not like a dissertation where you ask a new question and try to find out a new answer, but rather you see for what you're interested in, what have people already figured out? And um, so for me, that uh, Venn diagram comes into play because what I'm studying is what do we know about restorative spaces and what do we know about the ways that we've so far tried to make technology mindful or restorative or calming or slow. And so I'm reading all about those things. And then a committee of professors will send me when I'm done reading that a series of questions. I'll answer those questions over a couple of weeks and then I will be kind of through one of the gates of, of PhD life. So before I came to, to back to school, I was a designer. 
um, and I designed exhibits and digital experiences for science museums, um, among some other things, but that was basically my big career. And I have a design process. I know how to do something big and scary like the general exam. If it was a design problem, I have a process I can go through and not have to have any answers, but I can go through the process and get to an answer. And I feel really, really confident in that process and I've honed it over years. But I don't have an academic process. And so when somebody throws a question like, okay, in a few months, we're going to give you some really hard questions. You need to read thousands of pages of, of, of literature and answer them. I have no idea what to do about that. Like, how do I remember what I've read? How do I find that when I need to answer some question? Like, all of those things just feel so mysterious to me. It would be like someone saying, hey, go to invent a really cool game on this platform. And then like and me saying, well, I have no idea where I would even start. But I do have an idea because I have a design process. I don't have an academic process. So I set out to really develop a process for reading annotating, referencing, and synthesizing, all those things. And I tried a ton of different approaches. Every single note-taking software, most reading platforms, um, all the different ways that we type words in and write things. I've, I've just tried every app I feel like there is. And, uh, and I settled on sort of a philosophy of note-taking called Zettelkasten. And at first, I was using the archive, which is uh, is, a, is sort of a branch of notational velocity, if you've heard of that one. It's like a, a very streamlined but elegant note-taking, completely text-based tool. It's a great, great piece of software, the archive. But then I discovered Tinderbox and realized that I could have a visual layer to my... Um, to my note-taking and, and to my Zettelkasten, and we'll explain what all of this stuff is. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious because you've, you've brought up a few terms here that, that I'd like to unpack. Yeah. And why don't we start with Zettelkasten? Sure. So Zettelkasten is a, a German word that I think the most direct translation is slip box, where slip is a slip of paper. Um, so it's basically a concept where um, you write ideas, single ideas on, on, on index cards, and you sort them in boxes based on a very elaborate, unique identifying naming scheme. There's a whole world of Zettelkasten, but I think that the, the, the essential parts that I have kept are that instead of reading an article and writing a summary of it, a reading note where I would summarize and ask myself some questions and list out some quotes, let's say. Instead of doing that, I now distill every kind of insight and observation I make while reading into individual notes, into individual slips. And I put those together in infinite ways. So if I'm reading an article and I have one idea from the article, which is, let's say, that um, I'm reading about neurofeedback right now because a lot of the mindfulness devices are using neurofeedback as a way to like train people's brains to calm down. So I'm reading about neurofeedback and I'm having to learn like, how exactly does the brain 
work that we can measure it via electricity on these like sensors that these devices have, for example. And so I, I learn a little detail about that. I put that one detail in a note and then I learn another detail. Let's say that, um, that neurofeedback is also really good for PTSD. And maybe I'll make that a separate note. And so I have all these different notes that stem from one reading. And then I can connect those notes to each other and to future readings. The thing about a Zettelkasten is that the note is alive for the rest of its life as long as you're using it. So let's say in a year, I read another article about neurofeedback, or maybe there's an advancement in neurofeedback. I go and I edit that note that I just made, and I make it more robust. So the notes just live. When I make a note about some reading, I'm making a note for my future self, let's say 10 years from now, who wants to remember what I read about that single point. Um, so that's sort of at least one view of what a Zettelkasten is. The way you're describing it, it sounds to me like it's not necessarily tied to any one technology. It's something that you could potentially do with index cards. Absolutely. And, and what's so lovely about the folks that created the archive, who were kind of uh, a real hub of, of information about Zettelkasten, is that they... They, they put all the information out there and they say, here's one solution, the one that we made, but really you could do this with anything. And, and that's um, to their credit and to its flexibility. So you said that you're implementing this way of note-taking slash processing of information using a tool called Tinderbox, right? That's right. That is the thing that first drew my attention to your videos. Tinderbox is a tool that I'm familiar with. But uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you explain what it does and how you're using it to implement this approach? Sure. So Tinderbox, um, if you haven't heard of it, is not surprising. It's sort of an esoteric tool. It looks weird, kind of. Um, it's hard to describe. I think it's actually a wonderful example of the kind of way we would want to build technology if we were to build it contemplatively. Because it, the, the, the thing about Tinderbox is that the, the, um, creator of it, Mark Bernstein, he won't tell you how to use it. So I, I, I have to kind of respect that and say, this is how I'm using it. But to describe what Tinderbox is and what it can be used for is kind of an impossible task because its own creator won't do that. As I understand the, the real essence of Tinderbox is a note. So it's a note-taking tool. Everything that you do in Tinderbox revolves around notes that you take. But that note that you take can be plotted and visualized and referenced and all of these things in lots of different views. So you can have a map view of the note where you make a concept map or some sort of visual plane. You can have a timeline view of the note where the note appears on a timeline in relation to other notes that you have. You could have an outline view of the note. You can have just your regular text box, you know, text editor view of the note. And so there are all these different ways to basically see and manipulate and relate, connect between the notes that you're taking, which is exactly what was missing from the, the like software picture. I tried all of the mind mapping software. I tried all of the really kind of nice um, editing software, all that stuff, but nothing brought together outlining and mapping and connecting. And in Tinderbox, you can also alias notes. So basically one note has the same content, but it can be across all sorts of different 
areas. Um, and if you update it in one place, it updates everywhere else. So I'm able to create multiple visual maps of my notes. So I have a, I've been a long time concept mapper. I think it's a great way to like challenge and, 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 and like force yourself to synthesize information. You have to, you know, conceptually map it out. So what I started doing is I would come across a theory or an idea and I would create a concept map about it. And Tinderbox allowed me to create those concept maps um, as just part of the core set of features. And then what I think was just the, the stroke of insight that I had about Tinderbox and Zettelkasten was that each node in the concept map that I made could then be a Zettle, could be something that is a part of this larger reference thing. So I, I started making these very elaborate concept maps so that I could remember. So let's take a concept map like persuasive technology, BJ Fogg's contribution to the problem that we're all faced with today, which is that we're addicted to our devices. So how does that work? Well, basically his theory has three parts where you have motivation, you have ability, and there's a trigger. And if you're above a certain threshold, you have the right motivation and the right ability, that trigger will, will, will trigger a behavior. If you don't have enough motivation or if you don't have enough skill set, then that trigger won't work. Or if you have the motivation and the skill set and the trigger doesn't happen, then you'll never trip into the behavior. And so he uses these leverages that are just like really unfair. <laughs> like, um, you know, and he calls it out, you know, uh, we can alter motivation in a human by uh, scaring them, like threatening them, or we can give them hope, or we can make something painful or pleasurable, or we can promise social isolation and rejection, or we could, um, we could promise social acceptance. And when we do these things, that will motivate people to do what we want them to do. So I map all of this out in a concept map so that I understand the relationship of that. And me just telling you about that, my brain was remembering visually what I had mapped out in Tinderbox. And for each one of those nodes, let's say motivation or trigger, I have a zettel that tells me exactly what that means. And then it also hyperlinks, it has use a wiki link to BJ Fogg and to the article I read and any other articles that might mention it so that I can jump to those things across my tinderbox. It seems interesting to say it out loud. I'm imagining your podcast listeners probably feeling like, what is she talking about? Um, and so it probably would help to see a video or at least look at what one of these concept maps mean to kind of anchor in like what this experience is like. But it works beautifully um, because I'm able to synthesize by taking the note itself and then when I go to write about it or I'm trying to remember it, I have this, this real nice visual that I can work with. And, and it also has function. I can jump to other places and I can search and, and those sorts of things. So it's really working well for me. The nut to crack with this general exam problem and certainly with the dissertation and with the, with the scholarship I do once I have the PhD is like, that's a ton of information that I'm going through. I've done the reading note thing. It doesn't work. I don't remember it, you know, and so I feel like I actually am taking up more of the stuff because of this. Yeah, it's a tool that um, encourages nonlinear thinking and exploration about subjects, right? Yes. I also love the way that you described uh, 
Mr. Bernstein's positioning of Tinderbox in the market because it is something of a cipher in that it's a tool that can be turned into many different tools. The way that I've taken to describing it to people is that it is to information management as Photoshop is to image manipulation. You can use Photoshop for all sorts of different things, for tweaking photographs, for painting, for um, creating uh, graphic uh, artifacts for a website or what have you. And uh, Photoshop doesn't really dictate how you're supposed to use it, not as much as other tools for sure. That's a beautiful uh, analogy for Tinderbox um, because I've, I've, I feel like if I didn't have Photoshop, I would be missing an arm or something like I, I really, I really know that tool well. And, and it is very similar. Once you have a grasp of how to use something, you feel truly empowered to do things that, um, that you may see and be like, how could I get from this completely blank slate to that with just this tool? And yet you can. And, and, and similarly, as a novice, you arrive at the startup screen for Photoshop or the startup screen for Tinderbox, and you're just like, what am I even supposed to do here? <laughs> like, it's just so confusing. But they're both very, very powerful, and I think that's a great connection. This is one of the reasons why I appreciate your video so much, because I remember when I first got into Tinderbox, and this was over a decade ago. This is, an, this is an old tool. This is a tool that comes from a pre-Mac OS, and it's a Mac-based tool, I should mention. Uh, and, and it's a tool that comes from before even Mac OS 10. Mm. It's a, it's a kind of an old school Mac tool. And I remember first coming to it and feeling just as you're describing somewhat overwhelmed. It's like, well, I don't even know where to start. And many of the introductory tutorials out there tend to assume that you already know a lot about the tool. Mm -hmm. And um, your videos are very comprehensive and kind of take it from the beginning almost, which is, uh, I think, a real service to folks because it's a tool that does need someone to sit with you and show you what it can do before you can have a revelation about how it could apply to you somehow. That's exactly right. And I had just scoured the Internet for tutorials and agree that they are that the that the that space between like, okay, I can actually create a note and that aha moment of what does that mean for me? That space in the tutorial of Tinderbuck's realm is missing. There were some videos by um, Steven Zioli. Um, he has a blog, Welcome to Sherwood. Um, and uh, he had a few really basic use case examples of how he was using Tinderbox and it helped me understand some of the the features like agents and adornments and you know there's all this you know um, all this language of Tinderbox and and I had that moment of like oh that's how I could use it once you have that then you can start playing and 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 also to be fair I think one of the reasons why my videos are interesting is because my use is not particularly sophisticated 
and so it, it, it's, it's intellectually really useful and maybe there's some sophistication around my relationship to what is in the notes, but how I'm actually employing the features of Tinderbox is pretty like first or second grade, you know? And, and yet there's so much you can do at just that level. And I think that's what people are being, are, is what's resonating with people is that they're like, oh, I can use this too. I don't have to program and do all of these things that people who are kind of producing tutorials about Tinderbox are doing. Maybe in the future, I will go to a point where I want to go through all of my zettles and in some sophisticated way, grab some and play with them. And I'll need to program this or that. And, and then when I get there, I'll make a video about that. <laughs> but like right now, I'm really in that place of, of of making maps making them beautiful um using drawing and images and connecting things in creative ways and there's a lot of benefit just to that level of use one of the other things that your videos do is highlight one of the more powerful aspects of tinderbox which is the fact that it allows you to capture complex information without prescribed structure. Yes. And it uh, allows you to discover what the structure is that is kind of inherent in that mm -hmm. and let the structure emerge. Mm -hmm. That's right. Which is, uh, it's really peculiar and, and particular. I don't, I don't know of any other tools quite like it. Mm -hmm. Now, when I um, reached out to you uh, and you agreed to be on the show, you mentioned that uh, you did not want to give the impression that you've kind of got it all figured out somehow, right? Um, so it, the, the use of a tool like Tinderbox is something that, frankly, takes a lifetime to develop mastery over. Acknowledging that even as cool and as masterful as your videos are, you are still kind of discovering um, what the tool can do and where, and where you can take it. Do you have a sense of what next steps are for you or where there are kind of gaps in your process that you would like to address? Yeah, well, that's, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that just in case anyone got any sense of confidence or, um, I don't know what the word would be. There's no shoulds in my, in my explanation of Tinderbox. Let's just say that I, I feel like every time I use it, I learn something more um and i think that uh an, a gap or an issue let's say that i anticipate is that the the way i used it for map one is different than two three four twelve and so i may have a problem with that in the future hopefully i won't but i could in the sense that for example when i connect different notes i do so very extemporaneously. Uh, so I, I, I use the tool for what I need it to be used for in that moment. And if I were a little more methodical or systematic about it, I might connect notes in a way that in the future would be helpful to me. So let's say that I, for example, I map out all the people I read. And when I'm um, writing their little bio and I have um, and I have knowledge that these two people collaborate, I will connect them and I'll say collaborator. Um, and so in the future, maybe I will be able to use that metadata that connects people to say, let me see all the people that collaborate or something like that. Maybe that would be useful to me. Well, 
my notes, they're just completely random. Sometimes I say something like agrees. Sometimes I'll say something like example. Sometimes I'll say something like e.g. Sometimes you know, everything is different. And so I don't have any standards for how I connect things, which I anticipate may limit me in the future. And so then going back and fixing that stuff seems like it would be just so burdensome. And also, so right now I have set things up basically like that Venn diagram. I have one big area called restorative environments, which is public space. I have one big area called technology, one big area called contemplation. And I just, you know, if I have to rearrange that in the future, it might feel massive, you know, and, and, and within those areas, I have things like methodologies and theories and, you know, um, results or findings and, and those sorts of organizational concepts may just be completely, um, but that's the thing. If I were to have tried to figure that out before using it, I would never gotten started. And, and so I really am building it as I go. And in that way, there's a lot of charm, but I think there's going to be a lot of like infrastructural issues in a short period of time. Um, and I don't want to rebuild it. I think that would just be, uh, that would be, it, you know, you know how New York City is just like, how does this work? I think that that will probably be my settle cost at one point. You know, it's just like, wow, this is so complex and bubblegum and shoestringed. How is she making this useful? And it's because I was just very present to it every time I used it. And that's the other thing I wanted to say is that when I finish reading an article, I'm excited to go to Tinderbox and like play with what I've just learned. And that is just rare. <laughs> like normally that sort of work is, is, is tedium um, and it doesn't feel that way. But anyway, suffice to say lots of shortcomings, but they're anticipated. When you were talking about the variance in how you refer to examples, whether you use e.g or e.g or x or whatever, right? Over time, the thought that came to mind is that in some way, your usage of Tinderbox reflects the research that you're doing in that it is a tool that offers the best of what technology can do for you, but it also honors that you're human. That's right. right. That's right. And it, and it allows you to build these structures in an emergent way over time. And it's going to be imperfect, right? Because it's a reflection of who we are. We are not machines. We are not computers. That's right. That's so beautiful. You're very good at this listening thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And also to my, the point that I just made, using it is fun. You know, like that's honoring the experience of being human too, that the use of it feels valuable to me. It doesn't feel tedious. I am so glad that we had the opportunity to talk about it. It is a wonderful tool. Um, I am so into this idea of the Zettelkasten as well. And it's something that I am um, looking into as a result of discovering your videos. So before uh, we go, uh, where can folks follow up with you? I'm going to put links to the videos on YouTube, but um, where can folks follow up with you? Sure, you can um, contact me by going to my website, which is my name, becktench.com. From there, you can get to everything else, Twitter and um, email and, and all that stuff. And I 
very hopeful that in your um your experiences of zettelkastening and, and and that sort of thing that you share what uh, you're doing and learn too, because I think there's a very hungry community out there just to see multiple perspectives. And um, just like that lesson of just get started with Tinderbox, the Zettelkasten can suffer a similar fate. Like you just need to get started. Um, you will figure out the shape of a note and how you'll use it by creating them. Um, and uh, one of the things I did was I made Zettelkastens when I was learning about Zettelkasten just to like immediately apply it. So I would just recommend that kind of approach if you're, if you're interested in getting started with that. That's great, Beck. Thank you so much for, um, for your time, your wisdom, and for the work you're doing. I think it's very needed in the world. Thank you, Jorge. I really appreciate it.